Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 24 in the Bibles we provide. If you'll turn to page 978, 978, you will be at the right spot. Well, my name is John Chesty, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And this past week, I got to experience something that I'd never experienced before. I went with some friends on Patriots Day to the Red Sox game, and the Red Sox won, um, even with the rain delay, and it was a great game. And then after the Red Sox game, as if that wasn't good enough, we went and, and cheered on some of the runners in the Boston Marathon. Now, who, who got a chance to see that this past week? Got some here? Anybody else make it down there? Jason made it down there on the front here. Man, Ed, yeah, definitely. You know, as I watched and as we cheered on these runners, I'm, I'm also sitting there and I'm reflecting about life. Uh, many of you guys know that sports played a pretty big role in my life. I, man, football, growing up, I played football in college, so I, it is it is shaped. I, I think about sports. I like sports. I, I like to be active. I'm, I'm not as active as I, I should be now. But I, one of the things that impressed me on Monday was the resolve in these athletes. Now, I got a few pictures that I, I took on my iPhone here. I want you to see some of these. This is one guy. Man, we're standing there in, uh, in Kenmore Square, and you, you can just see him. Like, this is at the one-mile marker. One mile. We were there saying, you can do it. Finish. One mile to go. And so like, they got to be sensing the finish line. You got a guy like this. Here's another one. You may not be able to tell this very well, but the guy in the middle there has no shoes. He ran the entire Boston Marathon barefoot. And then I don't know if you heard this story about this guy. Um, Mikhail Malamed. Hopefully I said that right. Um, he has muscular dystrophy, finished at 5 a.m. the next day. Over 20 hours, but he finished. And, and he's got a medal here. I think the mayor gave him a medal. The resolve of these athletes with the task at hand. When I think about their resolve, I think backwards to their training. You see, most of these didn't just show up Monday to run a marathon. Who's ever trained for a marathon? Who's trained for a half marathon? My wife back here, Brittany. We got some up here. There, there's, you don't just show up and run that. There's a, there's a training plan in place. And I think about these athletes that are training to run the Boston Marathon. And if I were to run and I wanted to excel, I would go find somebody who runs it really well. And I'll say, you teach me how to train myself so that I can excel at running the Boston Marathon. People were not looking at me to figure out a great example to go train for the Boston Marathon. So they'd see me sitting on my couch or on my chair or at my computer. They're looking for those who are running with excellence because they want to finish the race with the best of their ability. So find somebody who does it well, imitate their life, and learn everything you can from them. Today, when we come back to our study through Ephesians, 
Paul is going to give us a similar exhortation. And he's going to say this. Do not walk like the Gentiles. Rather, set your eyes on Christ. Learn from him. If you want to look for somebody who has lived this life with excellence, look to Jesus, imitate his life, follow him. What if we looked to the example of Christ and we walked and ran the Christian life with great resolve? In a nutshell, that's what I want to challenge you with today. So let's go to Ephesians 4 and let's hear the word of God. Ephesians 4 beginning in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You can see this passage is broken up into two sections. The first exhortation is do not negatively how you should not walk and then positively beginning in verse 20 based on how we learned about Christ, how we should walk to put off, to renew our minds, and to put on. So let's start with the negative, verses 17 through 19. And the truth that I want you to get today is this, the first truth. You are no longer dead like the Gentiles, so don't walk in impurity. You are no longer dead like the Gentiles, so don't walk in impurity. Paul wants to make it extremely clear that our lives must stand in sharp contrast to those who do not know Christ. Now just think about it for a second. He's writing this to the church at Ephesus, which is primarily filled with who? Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles. You've got Jews and then Gentiles, which is everyone else. Probably most of us here are Gentiles. So he's saying, in one sense, you are a Gentile, but because of who you are in Christ, do not walk like the Gentiles do. You are now a new creation. You have a new identity. And what we're gonna see here is that one's inner thinking has powerful effect on one's external actions. So Paul's gonna begin to, to teach them how do you not, why do you not walk like the Gentiles? He's gonna start with their mind and then he's gonna end with how their thinking plays itself out in 
their actions. And it's the same for you and I. What we think eventually plays itself in what we do. So what do we see here? We see four reasons why we should not walk like the Gentiles. And the first one is this. He says, their thinking is futile. Do not walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. This is reminiscent here of Romans chapter one. I've got it on the screen here for you. For what, Paul writes previously, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his individual attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. And listen here, he says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. He's describing all of humanity here. They knew God, but they did not honor him or give thanks to him. He's saying you can see in creation that there is a God. We live and we ask, where did we come from? And you keep going back and say, well, where did he come from? Or where did he come from? Eventually get back and there's something at the beginning that, that cries out, that there's a creator. But he continues on in verse 25 and he says this. He says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped the creature rather than the creator. At the root of futile thinking is an elevation of the creature above the creator. We take the place of God and we begin to determine what is right and what is wrong. This is exactly what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis three. Satan is tempting her and she says no, but God has said we should not eat. And he says, did God really say that? And he says, you will not die. What's going on here? You've got, a, you've got the truth of God, and then you've got Eve who's wrestling with another truth claim from the serpent. And it says, Eve, when she saw the tree and that it would, be, it would make her wise, it was good, she took of it and she ate. You see Eve here, who was no longer coming to God and saying, God is the creator. He is the one that has full right to decide what is good and what is bad. She's saying, I'm now in that place. And I can determine what is good and what is bad. At the root of futile thinking of the Gentiles is an elevation of the creature above the creator. Frank Tillman gets it right in his commentary on Ephesians, and he says this, the worshipful acknowledgement of the one God is foundational to all useful knowledge. Without this foundation, Gentile knowledge about how to live one's life is deeply flawed. Paul's not saying here that if you don't know Christ, you don't know anything. But what he is he's acknowledging is that if you don't submit and see the creator of all things, how can you understand this world? If there really was a creator, God, who made everything and he has purpose, if you don't get that, how can you fit all the little pieces in the world together? So you may have 10,000 facts that may be true, but if you don't have 
the big picture and how to fit all these together, you're eventually gonna be led down a path that is not honoring to God. So your mind is a powerful thing and what you set your mind on sets the trajectory of your entire life. Peter O'Brien in his commentary notes this. He says, an obstinate rejection of the truth of God is the beginning of the terrible downward path of evil. As we read through Genesis, I mean Ephesians 4, 17 here, we're gonna see it starts with a futile way of thinking and then it's a downward spiral to just unrestrained sensuality and impurity. So they were futile and they're thinking. The second reason he gives here is why we should not walk like the Gentiles. It says they are darkened in their understanding. As far as their understanding, they exist in darkness. Darkened. It's like if we were to turn all the lights in here out and you couldn't see any light coming in and to go and try to find your way. They're in life darkened in their understanding. The God of this age has blinded their eyes to see the light of the gospel. And so their existence is aimless because they are ignorant of truth. The third reason, he says, is they are alienated from the life of God. And then he gives two reasons here. If you were to go in the Old Testament and you were to go to the covenant promises that God offered, you could go to Deuteronomy and he holds up and he says, I offer before you life and death. If you're faithful to the covenant, you will receive life. Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. When you, if you were to walk like the Gentiles, you are following people that are futile in their thinking, darkened, and are separated from the true life that is found in God. Why are they alienated from the life of God? He says it's because of the ignorance that is within them, a darkened understanding can only lead to an ignorance of reality, and then they are alienated because of their hardness of hearts. Now let me just ask you a question. If we are gonna be mature followers of Christ, what must our hearts be like? Are we cold? Are we a stone wall? Are we like a stone to all things spiritual? Things don't move me. They don't, they don't attract me. They don't delight me. No. We must have hearts eager to know God, to love God, to be taught by God, to invite the truth of God, the peace of God, the reign of God. So how can you follow the Gentiles when their hearts are cold against God? They are hardened. And then he continues on and he says, fourth, they have become callous and have given themselves to unrestrained sensuality. Finally, these steps and their futile thinking have resulted in outward behavior. Callous. This word callous. They are dull. They have lost all sensitivity and no longer feel shame or embarrassment. Do you see this? 
We've started with a different way of thinking, a feudal thinking, and now they're, ca- they're not only just hard-hearted, they are callous. There is not even in shame involved anymore in the acts that they're carrying out and practicing. Frank Tillman says, those who engage in it indulge a selfish desire to assert one's absolute right to pleasure no matter what anyone else might think of it, and in flagrant rebellion against the law. What's being described here is a thinking that's led to, I desire things, and I'm gonna go get what I desire, irregardless of what anybody else thinks, and particularly what God thinks. What does that sound like? This person has taken the place of God. They want to rule their life. I'm going to decide, and I'm going to follow what I want. I am supreme. The creature has been elevated over the creator. I use the word unrestrained here, but it says here in the text, it says, they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. There was no holding back. There were no restraints holding back their plunge into all kinds of degrading activity. And this word sensuality here refers to twisted behavior that's often of a sexual nature. If you were to to just trace this word in scripture, you would usually find it paired with sexual immorality. Sensuality and sexual immorality and impurity. They're often paired together. Doesn't this describe much in our culture? Non-believers in our culture don't want to be taught or told no. They want to have a desire and go fulfill that desire. Think about this. If we throw God out of the picture, what are we left to? We're left to our own thinking and we're left to our own desires. Now, just think about that for a second. Is it possible that there is knowledge out there that you don't know? I mean, it would be arrogant to say my knowledge is infallible. Number one, you're a created being and you're limited in knowledge. You don't know everything. And so you could think something was right, but you could never have certainty because you don't know everything. Beyond that, your desires And what our biblical worldview teaches us, and we're going to see later, is our desires deceive us. That I can't always trust the desires that I have. So if you throw God out of the picture, where is any objectivity to discern right or wrong? And that's exactly what our culture has done, and many believers are following. Look, I believe this message today that, was, that Paul shared with the church at Ephesus is so relevant for believers to hear. Don't look at the Gentiles in your walking. Why are you following them? But yet, so often, believers are walking down this same path of sensuality and impurity and a blatant disregard of what God has to say about life. Do not look to the culture to learn how God wants you to conduct 
your bodies. That is the first truth. If we are going to submit to God and follow his direction, we must not walk like the Gentiles. But secondly, positively, well then how should we walk? You are a new creation in Christ, so walk in holiness. We come to verse 20 here, and Paul says, but, stark contrast, that is not the way you learn Christ. And he says, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him. Paul had been to Ephesus. Go read through Acts. He had spent much time there. But as he's writing this, it had been removed from the time that he had been there. So it's possible that he's writing to people who are hearing this that, that he doesn't know if they've really heard or learned about Christ. And we've learned about that in the first few chapters of Ephesians, right? What do we learn about Christ? You were dead in your sin, but God, with his rich mercy and love, has saved you in Christ. Christ came. He is the perfect example. He never disobeyed God. He perfectly obeyed God. He is the true son of God. If you want to know what true humanity is like, look to Jesus. He lived the perfect life. He laid down his life willingly on a cross to bear the payment for the wrath of God that we deserve so that we could be made alive. And we are now, through faith in him, seated with Christ. This is the message of the gospel. Jesus is not on a cross. He's not in a grave. He is alive. And those who believe in him have new life. We see in chapter one, this is the message that those in Ephesus said they heard the word of truth, the gospel, they believed, and they were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. But in this imagery that he's talking about here, he actually presents Christ with school imagery. He says that is not the way you learned Christ, as if you go to school to learn something. And he doesn't say learn about Christ, he presents Jesus as the object. This isn't the way you learned Christ. Peter Brown says this, learning Christ means welcoming Jesus as a living person and being shaped by his teaching. So how did we learn Christ? What Paul does in the rest of this last section is he gives three infinitives and explains what it means and how we learn to follow Christ. He says, here's how you learn, to put off, to be renewed, and to put on. And so that's what we're gonna spend the rest of our time looking at today. So how do you walk in holiness? You walk in holiness by putting off the old self. Here is clothes analogy. It's as if you're to take these clothes off and then you're to put certain clothes on. It's an analogy to describe the process of transformation in the Christian life. If, if you were dead, Ephesians 2, you used to walk when you were dead in your sin. You're, if you're not dead anymore, if you've been made alive, then take the grave clothes off. Stop, act, stop acting as if you're still dead. You're alive. Put on the righteousness of Christ. That is the imagery. So, let me just ask you a question. Was this something, when he's saying put off, is this something that has already happened in the Christian life? Or is he commanding them, put off? It's a good question to ask. If you were to look at the text here, 
What does it say? It says in verse 22, this is the truth you were taught. You were taught to put off your old self, and then you were taught to put on the new self. To help us think through this, I want to look to a, a related passage in Colossians. You see a lot of similarities between Ephesians and Colossians. In Colossians 3, Paul says this. He says, put to death what is earthly in you, but now you must put them all away. Is that something, that first passage there, is that something that has happened or he's telling them to do? He's telling them, put to death. You must put them away. But look at 3.9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. What is he saying there? It's something that's already happened. What we see Paul do, he often can go back between the indicative and the imperative. And this is true of us. If you are a follower of Christ, your old self was crucified with Christ. It has been put off. But in the same sense, Paul can say, act that way. In, in other words, become and practice what is true of you positionally. You've already put off the old self. Well, stop acting like that. Put on Christ. So I would say implied here in Ephesians is he's not, yes, it's true we've put it off. Now he's saying positionally it's put off. Now practice, put it off. Become and practice what has been true of you in Christ. Live consistent with your new identity. Let me ask another question. Why does he say we're to put it off? Look back at the text. Why does he say? He gives two reasons. He says, first of all, the old self belongs to my former manner of life. In other words, he's saying, you're not dead anymore. If you have believed in Jesus and turned from your sins, you are alive. So to live that way would be inconsistent with your new identity in Christ. Second reason he gives is that the old self is corrupt. How? It behaves according to deceitful desires. Let me ask you this. How do our desires deceive us? How do your desires deceive you? Our desires hold out the promise of joy, of satisfaction, and yet they often cannot fulfill what they hold out. Your desires are screaming, do this, it'll satisfy you. What did we see in the, in the Gentiles? They were walking in unrestrained sensuality and impurity. So if they desired sexuality, they went after it. But what Paul is telling you to think rightly about Christ is that your desires can deceive you. Has that crossed your mind? Look, what would this world be like if we all act on our desires? I mean, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I am shocked at the desires that I see showing up in my heart. Anybody else there? Look, don't you know, I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm not standing here as one who is, I'm not Jesus. I just point people to Jesus, okay? So I'm sometimes shocked. Where did that desire come from? Even as a believer. 
If we always acted on our desires, can you imagine what this world would be like? No, we don't act on our desires. Just because I want it, I don't necessarily need to go and have it. So I want to take a sidebar here for a second. And I actually want to talk about sexual sins. Because our culture, and even as I look at the church today, we in many ways are buying into the Gentile way of life. And sensuality and sexuality is characteristic even of many people who claim to follow Christ. God's plan for sex. And let me just pause here for a second. As I said a second ago, I don't stand here as one who's perfect. Many of you have been in here before and you've heard me share, but I was addicted to pornography about six years of my life. Okay, that's a background. Look, I have sexual sin in the past that was not honoring to God. Okay, I stand here talking with that in mind. I don't stand here as one who's perfect. I stand here as one who's come to learn Christ and to see, see that I am called to put off, to renew my mind, and to put on. So that's the background here, okay? I'm not standing here throwing stones. I'm saying, how can we as a church collectively pursue holiness so that Christ would be magnified in our lives? God's plan for sex, he is opposed to all sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. And, but, and as I share that, let me, just take a, let me just make this absolutely clear. If you're here today and you are involved with homosexuality or same-sex attraction, I want you to know you're welcome. Look, I wanna love that person the same that I love anybody else. I'm not here and this, I'm not holding up homosexuality as one sin that's separate than anything else. I would say you are welcome just like the heterosexual couple who's engaging in sexual immorality before they're married. You're the same. I'm speaking to both here. You guys follow me here? I'm not elevating one or the other. God is not just opposed to homosexuality. He's opposed to all sexuality outside of heterosexual marriage. And I understand that is a very culturally challenging statement. I, I know that. But if we don't teach about this, you're gonna learn about it somewhere. I guarantee you, our culture is teaching you how to think about homosexuality. And so, I mean, we don't talk about this every Sunday, but I do believe as the text gives rise to it that we ought to think biblically and critically about what the Bible says about sexuality. The Bible and God calls everybody to walk in holiness. And so this is the message to everybody. No matter what you're wrestling with today, the cause is pursue holiness. Sex outside of marriage. Maybe you're not married. You're before marriage. Maybe it's, you're in marriage and you're wrestling with adultery. Maybe it's pornography. Here's what my perception is. We often say, I have desires. These desires must be good and so I must carry them out. I, I'm not married, but I really love this girl and we're attracted, it must be okay. I know I'm married, but I have this relationship with this other person and I have these desires and so I, I must follow those desires. Or when it comes to homosexuality, I have desires of same-sex attraction, so homosexuality must be okay. I'm gonna highlight a resource today. It's a book called, Is God Anti-Gay? 
It's a small book. Man, you could probably read this in a day. And it is really good. And Sam Alberry, it's written by a guy who wrestles with same-sex attraction. It's not written by a guy that has nothing. To, this is, he's coming from that. And he says this. All of us have desires that are warped as a result of our fallen nature. Desires for things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. We often think, I've got these desires, they must be from God. Well, how do you know that? He continues, he says, the gospel helps us to see our own desires in a different light. We should expect a number of Christians to experience forms of same-sex attraction. That shouldn't surprise us. We live in a fallen world. What marks us out as Christian is not that we have never experienced such things, but how we respond to them when we do. The gospel helps me to process my desires. So if you're here today and you're even wrestling with same-sex attraction or you're not married and you're wrestling with attraction to your future spouse, how does the gospel help me to think about that? How are we to respond? What does Paul say? Put them off. This is not how you learn Christ. You learn to put off sin. He's not giving you an option as if, man, if you want to, you can put off sin. He is saying, this is those who follow Christ. We pursue holiness. What characterizes our life is a continual pattern of put off, renew our mind, and put on. And Jesus didn't just call us to put off certain sins. Jerry Bridges says this, no one can pursue holiness is not prepared to obey God in every area of his life. So there must be a, a comprehensive desire to put off all sin and there must be a continual practice of our lives. Now, if we're gonna grow in maturity in Christ, as John Owen says, we must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Or as Jerry Bridges says furtherly, he's, further, he says this, every sin we commit reinforces the habit of sinning and makes it easier to sin. If you are lazy when you think of sin, it is gonna reinforce this pattern of sin. If you're here today and you're like, man, I am head deep in sin, I want you to know there is great hope in the gospel. But every choice you make to sin reinforces that habit. It becomes like to say a snowball. You, the way you make a snowman, you start with a small snowball and you roll it once and then you roll it again. And if you keep rolling that, it's gonna become a huge, massive thing. That's why pornography just about ruled my life. I made one first choice and then another choice and another choice patterned after time and that's now became what was consuming my life. But do you know how I crushed that snowball in my life? It was the grace of God, the power of the Spirit that led me to make a different choice to put off. If, if, if saying yes to sin reinforces that habit, that habit, what is the reverse? That's true. Saying no to sin and putting off. And tomorrow, again, saying no to sin and putting off. And again, saying no to sin and putting off. And if you do that over time, you'll look back and say, man, I'm pursuing holiness. And this huge snowball that was ruling, ruling my life has been crushed as I've put my eyes on Jesus and I'm resolved to walk in holiness. Look, I believe, man, if you're here today, you're like, man, I'm seeking and swimming. There is great hope if you will leave today with great resolve from the power of the Holy Spirit to, to say, I'm gonna put off sin. And I'm gonna wake up the next day, I'm gonna put it off. You'll look back over time and see that God is sanctifying you and working his great truth in you. But let me ask you this. How do you know 
if you're being deceived by your desires? How do you know if it's a good desire or a bad desire? I just mentioned a second, a second ago, homosexuality. The way I think through same-sex attraction is I say, this is a desire I have. How do I know if I should follow it if it's from God or not? So this leads us to the second truth. Walk in holiness by renewing your mind. We need some objective reality to renew our minds and teach us what is a good desire and what is a bad desire. And we don't just need any objective reality. We need an objective reality that we can trust. So this is similar to Romans 12 too. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why must our minds be renewed by the word of God? Here is my apologetic. And here's why I am a follower of Christ. We believe, what do we believe about this right here? What is this? A few suggestions. We call this the word of God. And if you'll go read our statement of faith, we say the word of God is inerrant, infallible, and authoritative source of truth. If this word can't be trusted, none of it can be trusted. And I'm left back with my own desires and my own way of thinking. You guys follow me? That's why it is essential for us to hold that this is the word of God. Because it can be trusted. It'll never lead you astray. You can always trust it. My desires may deceive me. My knowledge is limited. But God knows what is best. I shared this with a friend about a month ago. She's not a believer, Buddhist background, and I just drew a circle. And I said, I want you to tell me, this represents all possible knowledge. How much of it do you have? You know what she did? She like did like a little dot. How would you answer that? And so then I proceeded to ask her this question. I said, okay, this is the knowledge you claim to have. Based on your answer, is it possible that there is knowledge out there that would contradict what you would think might be true? She had to say yes, because she just acknowledged, I don't know everything, so something. So let me ask this, how do you have any certainty about anything in life? You can't, unless somebody who knows everything chooses to reveal true things to you. That is what we claim as the Bible. We claim that God, who knows all things, has revealed to us things that are true, and that's why you can trust this. If I can't trust all of it, I can't trust any of it. You guys follow the reasoning there? And so this now becomes an objective reality. So God is saying, he knows what is best. He knows all things. He's told me, so when I have these desires, man, I desire to have sex with my girlfriend before marriage. I'm coming and saying, God, help me to think rightly. Is this a good desire or am I supposed to put this off and be renewed in my mind? You guys follow my way of thinking there? I would do the same thing with a homosexual desire. I'm not denying you desire that. What I would question is, is is that a good thing that you should follow? And so Sam Albury, in this book, he still wrestles with same-sex attraction. But you know what he does? He puts off, renews his mind, and puts on. He sees that God is calling him to pursue holiness. Let me show you a picture of what this is like. 
a new believer, when they come to faith in Christ, your mind is like a hard drive. When you first come to faith in Christ, you no longer will pay the penalty for your past, present, and future sins. Jesus has paid for all of them. But does he completely wipe your hard drive out? Look, when I came to faith in Christ, I knew that I wasn't gonna pay the penalty, but there was a ton of junk still in my head. And this is a new believer. A new believer, is their mind has been filled like the Gentiles, futility of their thinking. And so there's a ton of lies about even their own desires in this world. The process of growing to maturity in Christ, this next slide, is this. As you renew your mind, knowledge and wisdom, I renew my mind to say, no, that is not the right way to think about it. This is truth. And so I put off an old way of thinking. I renew it with the truth of God's word. And over time, the lies get pressed out as I hear, read, and believe the word of God. And so put off sin and renew your mind. And you know what happens over time? Over time, more and more, you can trust your desires. We should still suspect my desires could could deceive me, but this is also the role of community. I'm coming to the word with my desires. 1 Timothy 3.1, if anyone desires the office of an elder, I have that desire. Is that good or bad? I come to the text. I've got this desire. Well, what does it say are the qualifications of an elder? Am I faithful to my wife? Am I managing my, like, you go, okay, that's an objective reality to discern these desires. But I also go to my church, and I'm saying, I have this desire, which is an internal desire. Give me some external, external objectivity to help me process what's going on. I did the same thing before I married my wife. I have a desire for my wife. I, I, I sense as I'm looking at the word of God that it's a good thing, but I go to my family, I go to my church, I go to my people that are discipling me and say, help me, give me an external objectivity to process through these inward desires I'm having. So you got the word of God and you surround yourself with other believers whose minds are being renewed by the word of God that can help you discern objectivity in life. And as you do this, more and more you can trust your desires. You guys follow me there? Third truth, I gotta wrap up here. We're to walk by putting off, we're to walk by renewing our minds, and we're to walk in holiness by putting on the new self. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Look at the text here. It says in verse 24, to put on the new self, created. What we are, what's being reminded here, once God created you, now in Jesus, you have been recreated. You are a new person. You were born again. You're, you were dead, now you are alive, and you are created in the image of God. Now, what do we know about God? He's holy and he's righteous. And so what Paul's saying here is, you're now creating the image of God. Be holy and righteous. We are to put on Christ. You've heard us talk about the three circles here. We shared it on Easter. God's design because of sin, there's brokenness, and we shoot to, to solve this brokenness in many ways, but the gospel, what I've just shared with you, we repent and believe, but what is the last arrow? Recover and pursue. What we are to do now, the way you learn Christ, is the gospel changes you, and you recover, and you pursue God's design. You are recreated to now be like God, to be like 
Christ. So we are to grow to maturity and be like Christ. But there's a problem. Oftentimes we run this race and we start looking around and somebody else replaces Jesus. I love this quote by J.C. Rowland Holiness. He says, let us never measure our religion by that of others and think we are doing enough if we've gone beyond our neighbors. Look, holiness isn't, well, I'm holier than them. And don't we do that often? Well, man, I'm not that bad. We can always find somebody below us. Paul doesn't say, man, find somebody below you to make you feel good about your holiness. He says, look to Jesus. That is the example, God. His holiness is what we're after. Yeah, I wanna, I wanna pursue God and then, man, bring you guys with me and say, let's go be holy like God is holy. So if we're gonna put on Christ, we must obey the commands of Christ. We must also imitate his life. And this should include both actions and attitudes. Look, some of us think of the Christian life as just a bunch of lists of what things you shouldn't do, a list of don'ts. The Christian life isn't just a list of don'ts, like don't do this. It's also become a person, become Jesus. Attitudes and actions that reflect Christ. This is the message that Paul wanted us to get today. We do this continually for the rest of our life. Do we just put off sin? No. Everything. Put off, renew, put on. We can't just focus on putting off. We can't just focus on putting on. It is like an airplane that soars with two wings. They're both essential. Or scissors with two edges. You put off and you put on. And the way you do this is you renew your mind. So the point, since God has recreated you in Christ to be holy like him, you should walk in holiness. So look at this picture. How will you run? How will you run the race? I would plead with you today to set your eyes on Jesus and run with great resolve to be like him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I know this is a challenging word for our culture that in many ways looks like the Gentiles with unrestrained sensuality and impurity. But God, you have called us to be a people like yourself, to be holy. God, as you worked this great redemption in me and killing and putting off sin, and pornography, and immorality. God, I pray you would continue to do that in me and that you would do that for our church, that Redemption Hill Church would be known in our community as a people who are passionate about the holiness of God. Yes, we love sinners because we are sinners saved by grace and that all sinners are welcome, homosexual and heterosexual, but we are all pursuing Christ. God, would you give us a godly and holy resolve today to be like you. Show us what steps we can take this week to put off sin. Show us steps that we can take to put on sin. God, would you take your word this week as we read it? Would you help us to discipline ourselves to read your word and pray? And as we read it, God, help us to believe it. Help us to believe that fullness of joy is in your hand. 
and help us to fight the desires, the deceitful desires that are holding out. No, this will please you. God, help us to believe that true pleasure is found in obeying and imitating you. God, change us that we may not be the same anymore.